electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Apple is kicking off its product event right now. We've got new AirPods, potentially. AirPods, maybe the long-rumored AirTags expected. We'll talk about all of it and get all those breaking details as it happens. Also, legendary investor Bill Miller joins us today. He'll tell us what he thinks is the biggest risk to this market and why he's still a Bitcoin believer. And if you're looking to hedge the market, look no further than the letter J. We'll explain what we begin with today's markets. Today, Dom Chu is back with those numbers. All right, so we have a predominantly down day, working on two straight down days in a row. Maybe not huge, but still near those record highs. The Dow Industrial is 33,833, so below the 34,000 mark, off about three-quarters of 1%. 4131, the last rate for the S&P. Again, off three-quarters of 1%. And slightly bigger losses for the Nasdaq Composite. Remember, tech-related stocks yesterday, the epicenter for a little bit of that selling pressure. Today, it's the energy stocks. We'll keep an eye on the Dow and the Nasdaq specifically. Another place to watch, the reopening trade. Hot for the last six months is now taking very much a breather. Look, look at today. Travel and leisure-related stocks, reopening-type trade stocks. United Airlines off by 9%. There was an earnings catalyst there. Some worse-than-expected results for the airline companies. Carnival Corp. on the cruise side, down 5%. Live Nation for concerts, down about 4% as well. And even Simon Property Group, big retail mall owner, down about 2.25% right now as well. So watch that reopening trade coming off some profit-taking there. And then... Of course, Kelly, you just mentioned it, Apple, the biggest company in the world, the S&P 500, off by about 1% right now. Over the last year, nearly doubled in price, and that's not even since the pandemic lows. But remember, we are now down roughly 8% from the record highs that we saw at the heights, Kelly, a $2.4 trillion company. Right now, closer to $2.2 trillion in total market cap. We'll see if these product announcements in this coming hour are enough to get some traders more excited about that stock. We'll send things back over to you. Yes, yeah, $3 trillion, already a discussion point for the company, Tom Banks. Apple is where we begin as the company kicks off its first product launch event this year. Josh Lipton is standing by with what we can expect. Josh. So, Keller, we don't know for sure what's coming, but here's what reports suggest, that Tim Cook's company could announce new hardware today, specifically new versions of its high-end iPad Pro, faster processor, a new screen to produce better images, and optional 5G connectivity. The iPad has been a true bright spot for this company. iPad revenue jumping 41% in the company's Q1 to $8.4 billion. Of course, the key question for investors now, what does growth look like in the quarters ahead as people are vaccinated and now return to school and work? It's not just the iPad, though. Perhaps Apple could also add its new in-house processor, the M1, to more of its Macs, IDC saying Mac shipments surge 112 percent to 6.7 million units in Q1. Now, in addition to hardware, Apple could announce a new paid subscription option within its podcast app. That's according to the journal, which will allow listeners to compensate hosts directly. That certainly fits within Tim Cook's broader strategy, emphasizing new digital services and capitalizing on a popular trend. This year, e-marketers saying that nearly 118 million Americans will listen to a podcast at least 
least once per month. Kelly, back to you. All right, Josh, thanks, and we'll see you again soon. As we track the news coming out of Cupertino, Casey Newton is the editor of Platformer and a CNBC contributor. He's with me now alongside Steve Kovac, who's the technology editor here at CNBC.com. Good to see you both. Steve, there's a lot of speculation. I mean, they called this, um, what was it, spring, uh, sp- spring, spring loaded. loaded, right? So this, there's this idea that there's going to potentially be a lot of product announcements. Um, can they meet the hype at this point? Yeah, I think what you really got to watch for during this event is less about the iPads. We kind of already know what to expect there on the hardware front. It's really the services front that I'm interested in, especially Apple TV, which has been kind of faltering since it launched at the end of 2019. If you ask me, the only show worth watching on there right now is Ted Lasso, which is an amazing show, by the way. But there's not enough there to really keep people uh, subscribed to the service. And in fact, they've been extending their free trial. It was a year, then a year and change. And now it's like a year and a half from the original launch date. So it's clear Apple itself thinks people won't be able to uh, have enough to watch to actually start paying for it. So I'd be curious to see what kind of TV announcements they have. We've seen Disney and, and Viacom CBS and all these big streamers coming out trotting out all their great IP and great TV shows. We haven't seen that from Apple lately. So that's going to be really interesting to watch. It's a good point. Casey, uh, Jim Cramer was also emphasizing how important wearables have been as a category. They may say something about AirPods here. That's, you know, the watch is kind of core to the a, a lot of the different things that they have going on. But I guess my question for you, if we stick with this piece for right now and these rumors about paid podcasting is, how big a business could that be or should that be for them? And how hard is it going to be to take a market share from the likes of Spotify? Well, look, podcasts really started as a business on uh, Apple's ecosystem, and it's been a huge opportunity for them for a really long time. At the same time, I think you could see a lot of backlash to an announcement like this if it feels like it breaks the kind of open ecosystem that podcasts operate in right now. So I think it was probably inevitable that Apple was going to want to play here, but um, a lot is writing on how they communicate it and on what the exact terms are for these podcast creators. Let's talk, Casey, as well about the iOS updates that may be coming. In some ways, this would affect users the most, perhaps, if unless they're directly buying one of these new devices. And this is the controversial operating system that would shut off ad blocking for some apps like Facebook, right? That's right. And those who are sort of on the privacy side or simply the anti-Facebook side are really excited about this. They don't want to be tracked uh, however they're using their phone. Uh, You know, Facebook and others have come back and said this enables, uh, you know, personalized advertising that is helpful for a lot of small businesses. So I think on the whole, this has been a a huge public relations win for Apple. um, And it remains to be seen, you know, what potential negative effects it could have on other tech businesses. Right. Uh, And we're starting to get some headlines in here. But as we gather them, Steve, I just want to quickly mention some of the hardware launches that we're likely to hear. How important are they? New things. I think it's called mini uh, LED. I mean, screen technology that should have better battery life on the iPads and, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, are these iterative? Are these, you know, groundbreaking? And how important is the Apple chip that might be in some of these new computers at a time when there's this big chip shortage uh, globally? Yeah, that's. I think it's more iterative what we're going to see out of the iPad line. It sounds like it's just going to be a new version of the same iPad Pro we got a year ago. But like Josh was saying earlier in this segment, iPads have been a huge pandemic gadget for Apple as people are working and playing from home. It's These are the devices people like. And when it comes to the, the M1 chips that you're talking about, that's a really good point. They're, they're slowly moving away from Intel. Probably by the end of the year, just about every Mac will have the the Apple chip instead of the Intel chip inside of it. And again, 
huge opportunity for them to keep growing that Mac business, which right. frankly has kind of languished over the last five or six years. We are putting shares of Spotify on the screen. They're down nearly 4%, Casey, there at session lows. Uh, there are headlines on the wire right now. We'll have more shortly, but that Apple is launching a newly designed podcast app, which includes channels to find new shows from favorite creators and paid podcast subscriptions. So like you said, it may come down to who's in the ecosystem, who's out of it, and what the details are. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, my big question, just sort of seeing these headlines is, uh, how's it going to work if you don't use Apple's podcast player? Does, is all of this going to require you to be in the Apple app? Uh, or, or if you're, you know, using something like an Overcast or a Casco, are you going to have to sort of upend all of your podcast listening? Um, so there are a lot of questions uh, to, to be answered here. But, you know, I think you really can't understate what a significant shift this is for the podcasting industry. I'm not surprised that Spotify is taking a dip right now. But Casey, sort of dwell on that for one more moment, if you could. Why is this so important? So let's back out for a moment. Like you said, Apple created the podcast category, but has somehow fallen completely behind. How is it now trying to catch up? So what Apple didn't do was create easy ways for the people who make podcasts to make money, right? And so you saw this whole alternative ecosystem sprout up uh, on, on Patreon and on some other other channels. Um, you know, a lot of people would start a Discord server just to sort of have a way to monetize their audiences. When Apple comes into the market and says, we're going to offer creators those tools directly, it sort of resettles the entire landscape for creators, depending on how hard they go into it, how good they execute the product. But I um, mean, it's really hard to think of a, a bigger shift for the podcast podcast industry that Apple deciding it wants to let creators monetize directly. All right. We'll leave it there for the time being. Steve, before we go, I just want to mention a couple of other things. We're learning a new color for the iPhone 12 purple, uh, some details on the Apple card. Uh, what do you think is the most important for investors at this hour? Oh, what I'm really looking at, too, is just kind of the stuff that they're not going to be talking about uh, during the event, which is these kind of bubbling threats happening at Apple. We know the Facebook PR battle, which we mentioned earlier. And then coming up on May 3rd, there's the Epic versus Apple trial, which is really going to hinge on the way the App Store works and could, if it goes Epic's way instead of Apple's, could uh, damage the App Store growth that we've seen over the last couple of years. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They're also announcing those air tags. Uh, this, this whole idea you can stick a little Bluetooth tracker on a lot of devices, track it through your phone. We know think of a lot of uses for that, uh, like panelists on Rapid Fire when we're all back in person. Uh, gentlemen, we'll see you again soon as we learn more from this event. Casey Newton and our own Steve Kovac. Take a quick break, though. Coming up on the other side, legendary investor Bill Miller tells us why he's still a Bitcoin believer, the stocks he thinks are still buys, and why there's very little standing in the way of this rally. Plus, another payment company gets into the crypto space. It's Venmo this time. We've got the details on Doge Day. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes... 
but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to the exchange. Stocks may be lower again today, but they've still had quite a run this year with the Dow and the S&P up about 10 percent. There are lots of lingering concerns out there, though. Rising bond yields, inflation, valuations, COVID concerns still. Let's talk about the risks and rewards in this market now with legendary investor Bill Miller. He's the chairman and chief investment officer of Miller Value Partners. Bill, it's great to have you back. Uh, the Miller Opportunity Trust is up 17 percent year to date, outperforming the S&P. And you guys, I know, are up multiple times over, I think, since the bottom last year, which you called on this show about a week before it happened. So before I get into all of that, Bill, I I just read that you guys sold out of your GameStop. Is that true before the big run up in January that you you had the same narrative as all the retail crowd? But but they they were just a little too late, I guess, for you. Yeah, well, we we have uh, GameStop in our deep value product. And um, I think our cost on it was around four or something. Yeah. When it got into the 70s is when we sold it. Then it, of course, went to 400. <laughs> but still, try to time that top. I mean, if you bought a four and sold at 70, it doesn't sound like it's a disaster. Do you have any opinion on that stock now or any of these other kind of so-called meme stocks? Um, they're, they're not of interest right now because they're, they're sort of in the, in the grip of uh, the Reddit uh, crowd. And they're not, it's not, you're not able to actually analyze them in the same way that you would other, other things because the price is dominating the Well, one uh, interesting characteristic of this market, especially as the rally goes on, is what's happening to the short sellers. There was a great piece recently about what's been going on with Chanos Fund and some of the other major players in this space. Uh, Their assets are dwindling. It's been a really difficult environment to short in, right? I mean, and and you're often on the other side of a lot of these cult favorites. You guys don't mind taking the risk of, I mean, you have companies like Farfetch in your top holdings. You've been an Amazon holder forever. Um, so what do you think happens as this rally goes on if, if short selling is literally becoming, to some extent, unprofitable? Or maybe they've just been betting on the wrong sectors. Well, well short selling is always a tough, a tough thing because the market goes up about 70% of the time, 70% of the year, 70% of the months. And, uh, and, of course, if you're short and it goes against you, your name goes against you, then it becomes a bigger problem, a bigger part of your portfolio, whereas if you're long and you're wrong. It's a smaller part of your portfolio. So it's, a, it's mathematically a very difficult, a, a difficult way to make a living. And so what, on the long side, what names are you interested in right now? Um, are you looking sort of through the lens of the post-pandemic period? Um, are there any emerging technologies or growth companies that you think are still attractive? Because we have been at kind of a lull with some of the higher multiple areas of this market for the last few months. Yeah, I mean, I think the market is uh, the market's roughly fairly valued right now, which means that there's a probably a, a roughly even spread between the names that are that are too expensive and the names that the names that are too cheap. Um, you know, we, you mentioned Farfetch and we had Stitch Fix last year; those were some of our, our big winners. Farfetch is up, I think, eight times uh, from what we paid for it just about just about a year and a fraction ago. And so those those names have corrected. They're still expensive on a on a short term basis, but again, we're we're not in them for the we're not in them for the short term. I think in the SPAC area, which I think that game is largely winding down now, hmm. and many of the SPACs that came public came at, at extraordinarily expensive valuations. But now, now they've, some of them have corrected, like um, a company called Desktop Metals, for example, that we, that we owned. It was 30, and now it's, now it's 11. And that's a company that is in additive manufacturing. So it's, it's, like, the, it's like 3D printing, but, but the next wave of that. So we think some of those SPACs are, are, are attractive. Metro Mile, an insurance company, next, next wave insurance company, uh, seven right now, 
so we we like uh, we like that one. And then there's there's some valuation discrepancies in the overall market. I mean, I, I think that the big names, the big the big fang stocks, are all pretty attractive. But something like um, attractive, yeah. You know, Amazon, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook. You know, we we own them. If we don't own Apple anymore. We should have we should have kept it. But, <laughs> but I think I think they're all fine. But a name like a name like Varum, which is a, a used car uh, seller over the internet, has a five billion dollar market cap with a management team that was part of what built bookings.com, which is a $100 billion market cap company. Carvana is the leader with a $45 billion market cap, and Varum is about three years behind Carvana with a, with a much higher return on capital hmm. model. So that's a name we think you could make multiple times your money in the, next, in the next three or four years. So let me ask, as you lay all these scenarios out, are you concerned about being invested in stocks uh, in general right now when we're talking about 19% budget deficits, uh, huge uh, debt numbers, and open questions about which way inflation and rates are headed? Uh, no, n- not not at all. I mean, it, in terms of in terms of that stuff, when uh, you might have asked me before, what I worry about, and, and my general comment is, I really don't worry about much of anything because everybody else is always out there worrying about everything. So they they've got the worry covered in the overall in the overall market. I think we're just looking for opportunities, you know, in that in the in the market. And I think there's there's plenty of them out there. I mean, I think you know, General Motors is, is I think very very attractive with the new CFO, uh, Paul Jacobson, who came from Delta. We're very creative C- CFO at Delta. And, and GM, I love the lineup. I think Mary Bear has got a great strategy, and and the, the valuation discrepancy between it and um, and Tesla is just is just way too big. Do you think interest rates are going higher? I mean, do you have to change your investments to take that into account? If so, you know, it's it's the thirty-year Treasury was down almost ten percent in the first quarter, and for something that's supposed to protect you uh, and, and and be a bulwark in your portfolio, that's the worst quarter in forty years. For the 30-year Treasury, there's only one other quarter in history that was worse than that, and that was in, in, in 1980 when inflation was in the process of peaking. So I, I think the Treasuries, in general, so that I think the 10 years backed off from the 175. But the Fed, the Fed wants inflation to run hot for a while, meaning over over 2. percent So it's a negative negative rate of return. I don't see why anybody would own those, but but there's a massive amount of money that flowed into into bonds over the past 10 years because we were in the midst of a gigantic bond bull market, which mm-hmm. I think is over. So let me ask you one more question about all this, and I just want to go back to the, the deficit issue. How does it get resolved? How do we go from 19% deficits to some to figure much smaller? Um, and is that going to be the kind of resolution that constrains growth, or whether it's in particular states or parts of the country or just overall? I'm just curious if you have any concern about that. Um, I, I, again, I don't because it's unknowable. Um, you know, Larry Summers has a, 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 only a one-third chance that the, this current this current stimulus program won't end badly one way or the other. And on the other side is you know uh, Chairman Powell and Secretary Yellen who who uh, are not worried about it, and Paul Krugman either. So you've got a lot of economic heavyweights out there with very different opinions, and and I don't think that uh, I don't think it's clear what what the ultimate outcome is going to be, but. We don't have to wait to see that. We know what's going on right now, and right now, you know, inflation's not a problem, and we're going to have a big boom this year with, this, with the stimulus and on top of the, uh, the reopening of the economy. Yeah. So then let me circle back to crypto, which is kind of related to all of these questions, because there are people in it because their case is, you know, we're going to see dollar debasement and all of these different things, and there, I think increasingly are people in it after hearing what you and Stan Druckenmiller said last fall and realizing the institutional interest is just going to keep growing and growing, and they just figure they'll ride that wave. Um, Bitcoin is now up, I think, three. So when we spoke, I want to say it was around 14. So it's up about four times uh, since we spoke in value. How much more upside is there? Even if you think there's upside, is there a lot more upside, do you think? 
You know, I, I, it's too bad we had um, we had uh, video difficulties. So I was going to have my Bitcoin hat on when you answered that. <laughs> uh Baseball cap. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I mean, Bitcoin. There, there are many, many different ways to look at Bitcoin. The simplest one is just supply and demand. You mentioned uh, the mainstreaming of it and the institutional acceptance of it. Uh, and I think you know, supply is growing two percent a year, and demand is growing faster. That's all you really need to know, and that means it's going higher. So I think that. Um, you know, it's going to have these kinds of uh, volatile days. It was down 20% peak to trough over the weekend, but back in 2017, which which was a bubble, I don't think I don't think this is a bubble at all in Bitcoin. I think this is now the beginning of, of a mainstream mainstreaming of it. But um, even back then, during the bubble, it went down 20% on five different occasions. So volatility is with with Bitcoin. Volatility is the price you pay for for mm. performance. And and I think that you know if it if it it's I think it's like digital gold. That's the, that's the first stop in it. And gold is about a Ten trillion dollar asset category, and and Bitcoin's one one trillion dollars, and um, it's it's infinitely divisible, or almost so. It's easily transportable, and can be sent anywhere in the world if you have a smartphone. So it is it is a much better version as a store of value than gold. And then so, there's fifteen trillion dollars of negative yielding uh, of bonds out there. Why would you have that when you could own something that at least has a, has the potential to go up? Mm-hmm. And do all of these arguments then extend to other cryptos? You know, a lot of people are now, I look at whether it's videos on social media or you name it, I mean, there's this constant interest in chasing the next big crypto performer, and a lot of them are up even more, I mean, way more in some cases than Bitcoin. Do you dabble in any of those, or do you just stick with Bitcoin? No, I, I don't, I don't um, fiddle around with any of, any of those others. There's a, there's a lot of good theoretical work done on, on uh, lock-in and path dependence in technologies. Brian Arthur at Stanford is one of the, one of the leaders in that area. He's also written another book called The Nature of Technology. But effectively, when, when you have a technology uh, like Bitcoin, there's, what happens is that there's an there's a explosion of new, uh, new technologies that come along with it. So now we have about what, eight or 10,000 of these ICOs. But eventually, eventually the, those things lock in, and there's a dominant company which is, or, or a dominant entity. Mm. And that's why, that's why the antitrust people are going after Amazon and uh, Google and Facebook and and because those those companies are so dominant, and I think Bitcoin will be the dominant technology in this uh, in this emerging asset category. And maybe in our next chat, we can talk about what regulators may or may not do about that. It feels like it's still a little ways off. Bill, thank you so so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Great, Kelly. Thanks. Bill Thanks. Miller with Miller Value Partners. Coming up, the letter of the day is J. You just heard it alluded to. Jeffrey's chief market strategist says if you're looking for a market hedge, look no further than the tenth letter of the alphabet. He'll join us to explain. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. We're getting a lot of headlines out of the Apple event going on this hour. Let's get right over to Josh Lipton for what we know so far. Josh? So, Kelly, let's start with some of the new hardware that's been announced here. A new iPhone accessory, the AirTag. So these are going to be small disks, Kelly, that you can kind of attach 
to various items. Think about your keys, your wallets, and your bags. And these, these disks would help you uh, find them and track them, taking advantage of Apple's existing uh, Find My app. 29 bucks a four-pack for $99. Orders start this Friday, available officially April 30th. I would not sleep on this hardware. I think if it works as advertised, you can see how it's really solving kind of a pain point for a lot of people, especially, listen, as we get vaccinated, go out in the world, go back to our offices, gyms, and schools. Also, Apple TV 4K, that's new here. Apple promises a new level of performance, massive upgrade, they call it, completely redesigned remote. Apple, like every other tech giant, certainly wants to be in your living room. This is not a big revenue generator for the company, but it's an important screen for consumers. And of course, it's another way to market the company's streaming service. Starts at 179 available in the second half of May. They're also talking about the Mac. Apple adding its new custom processor, the M1, to more Macs in the lineup. So that's the company's new, faster, more efficient chip. Apple now introducing the all-new M1 uh, equipped iMac. Listen, the Mac has been on a tear due to those work-from-home trends, and certainly Tim Cook wants to keep that momentum going with these new machines. We'll end on some new uh, subscriptions as well here. Apple announcing that it's launching its podcast subscription next month. That, of course, puts it in more direct competition with Spotify, which has also been putting a lot of time, money, and effort into podcasts. Makes sense. Tim Cook wants more subscriptions. He wants to capitalize on popular trends. eMarker says this year about 118 million Americans are going to listen to a podcast at least once per month, and that is up from 107 million in 2020. So you can understand Apple's enthusiasm here, Kelly. Josh, can we stick those air tags on our kids? <laughs> I know that's a good question, Kelly. Maybe they give you a discount if you do that. Um, but listen, I think you know it's sound. It's new hardware, and I do think it's interesting. If, again, if it works as advertised, especially right now as people are going back into the world, it's something everybody can relate to. When you're misplacing these items around the house, I could see how that could be um, could be a winner for a lot of consumers. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, be interested to see how everyone uses them. Josh, thank you. We'll see you soon. Let's check on the markets right now. Dow is down 350 at the lows today. Like Dom mentioned off the top, it's been a tough market stretch here the last day or so. We're down 300. That's just shy of 1%. NASDAQ, the worst performer, again, down 1.3%. Let's check the sectors real quickly as well, where real estate and consumer staples are leading the way today. It has kind of a rates sheen to it, if you will. Energy financials and consumer discretionary are lagging. We are seeing some individual movers. Shares of Kansas City Southern are sharply higher after they got a $325 a share rival bid from Canadian National. That's $50 higher per share than the prior $275 offer from Canadian Pacific. And shares of Fisker are higher on an initiation of buy at Bank of America. They're saying a favorable comparison to Tesla. Fisker's up nearly 3%, uh, 4%. But the rest of the EV stocks not faring as well today. Uh, Nikola, Workhorse, and Lordstown all down right now about 2 to 6%. And the tobacco stocks are under pressure on that news that the Biden administration could target nicotine levels. Altria is seeing the biggest declines, but it's less than 4% now. Uh, Philip Morris is actually positive by 2.5%. It had an earnings beat. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon now for our CNBC News update this hour. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. The Biden administration is taking steps to protect the nation's electric grid from cyber attacks. It's calling for a public-private effort over the next 100 days. Nordstrom is hosting a hiring day in Texas. The retailer says that it has hundreds of positions to fill in Nordstrom and Nordstrom rack stores throughout the state. While visiting a construction site, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson threatening to support legislation that would stop that planned soccer Super League. Johnson likened the new league to a cartel that restricts competition and does not benefit fans. And with pandemic restrictions easing, weddings are back in a big way. Many couples who delayed their nuptials last year are now getting ready to tie the knot now. 
And you can follow one couple on their trip to the altar tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. So, Kelly, apparently the fall is expected to be the busiest time of the year, but love is back in the air. <laughs> so happy to see it. Yeah, it, but it's going to be tough for a lot of these businesses, Rahel, who had no business last year. They're going to have double or triple. I mean, that. I mean, it's a good problem to have, yes. relatively speaking. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, we'll see you soon. Sure. Ahead only wants to go public. Venmo gets into crypto. And in the inflation debate, P&G says it's definitely out there. It's raising prices. It's all ahead in rapid fire. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few other stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Julia Borston, Michael Santoli, and Kate Rooney. Welcome, one and all. And first up today, Wall Street is tuning into Netflix earnings after the bell. And I think we can say earnings now instead of just results. Anyway, Mike, you know where I'm going with that. We're keeping an eye on subscriber growth, on international expansion, on subscription price hikes, and on that controversial password crackdown. Stock's been on pause this year, but it's been up so much. In fact, since Disney Plus launched, Netflix is way ahead of the competition. But of course, companies like Disney and our own parent company, Comcast, have had movie studio and theme parks businesses that were hurt hard in 2020. So, Mike, I guess where are we on the Netflix story after such a humongous run up in the pandemic? What happens next? Even before the pandemic, over five years, uh, it's up, uh, let's say, 450 percent or something like that. It's really just consolidated those gains. I would amend that point about the launch of Disney Plus, because if you date it to the April 2019 investor meeting Disney had that detailed their strategy on Disney Plus and the price point and things like that, then Disney has actually uh, outperformed Netflix. So there's been a little bit of a push pull. And I think really it's developing as, you know, these two are maybe the core of somebody's streaming menu. There used to be a concept in investing called core and explore. You know, you get your index funds and then you play around the edges. And I think the the market's viewing it that way with these two players. Core and explore. So, Julie, Mike's point about Disney is even more impressive because we've had a pandemic in the meantime. Um, So Netflix is the pure play if you just want the subscription business and not to deal with the real world stuff. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at that chart, it's kind of like comparing apples and fruit salad, right? You know, you have apples, which is the core streaming business, which is Netflix. And then Disney and Comcast do have that streaming play, but then have all of these other businesses as well. You know, in Comcast's case, CNBC's parent company also has, you know, selling broadband to consumers, which is a business that has done well during the pandemic. And then, of course, the theme parks, which have struggled. But I think, Kelly, back to Netflix, it's interesting looking at the stock's performance over the past year because it has meaningfully underperformed the NASDAQ. And a lot of that has come down to the fact that the company has warned that a lot of its subscriber growth could be a pull forward from growth that it otherwise would have seen this coming year. So it'll be really interesting to see just how much that subscriber growth slows both in Q1 and in Q2. Final question on this, Mike. How much should investors in general be watching Netflix results and the share reaction as a lens on what happens to that whole part of the market or to the market overall? I mean, is it a bellwether? It's honestly, it's a bellwether perhaps for sentiment on on mega cap secular growth. But because the dynamics of Netflix, meaning subscription based, consumers actually pay for it, it's a little bit less just a, a play on the long term kind of networked economy the way that Facebook and Alphabet are. So obviously, good information. It's the first one to report in terms of that response reflex we get from the market. But I wouldn't say that it necessarily is going to color what comes after it altogether. All right. Fair enough. And again, we'll see. We'll see what kind of mood uh, the investing community is is in. Uh, let's talk about Procter & Gamble. Inflation being such a hot topic these days. P&G 
P&G had earnings. Speaking of earnings, uh, they reported beats across the board this morning. And interestingly, price hikes. P&G shares, by the way, up about 1% right now. They said in the fall they're going to bump up prices on baby products and feminine care brands. And that's to offset rising costs for raw materials and transportation. Uh, the stock getting a bit of a boost today. Investors maybe giving it a mild a round of applause. Other consumer products and food companies are also hiking prices. That includes Kimberly Clark's baby and child care, Scott toilet paper, Hormel's turkey products, and J.M. Smucker recently raised prices on Jif. You know, Kate, I know you're our, uh, our, our uh, comparison shopping expert around here. Have you noticed uh, prices going up? That's interesting you mentioned that. I think of e-commerce. I haven't, I mean, I live in San Francisco, which couldn't be more expensive. So I feel like I'm sort of on the other side of the spectrum. But you think about e-commerce and the ability to come in, undercut some of these prices and sort of subsidize hmm. um, what would otherwise be relatively expensive. You could come in, gain market share, offer cheaper prices, which Amazon has done tactfully, and they may end up doing that here. They could subsidize that business. Yep. They're making a ton of money on AWS. We'll see. It's a great point, Julia, because, again, we've seen this actually with some companies like Brandless or others where they say, or look at just the success of Costco and Kirkland. I mean, this is the risk that these companies are running there. And it tells us two pieces of information. Either they're going to raise prices and get undercut by somebody else, maybe where investors are willing to finance uh, the losses there, or everyone's going to be raising prices across the board and we're having a very different kind of conversation in six months. Yeah, Kelly, I think it's it's interesting because Procter & Gamble said as they raise prices, they're going to try to add more bells and whistles, more features to improve each product so people feel like they're getting more when they buy that pack of diapers and it's more expensive. I think it'll be interesting to see if that actually works or if people are skeptical of that. I mean, there are only so many technologies you can uh, can use to improve diapers as the prices go through know. the roof. So I think that's going to be the question is, do you have a maybe a more a more insight into that? But if, <laughs> if they have a sense that there's some some companies are going to just be making a value play and others are going to be playing up sort of the premium nature of what they're offering. No, it's a great point. And Mike, just finally, the stock itself up 14 percent over the past year. I mean, that's it's not that great. Is this going to be some kind of catalyst for them if we're entering a, a better margin environment? I think as a category of company, it's a pretty good reminder that stocks and particularly consumer stocks have been a great hedge against inflation on in the very long term. They capture the price increases uh, over time. They're able to kind of compound that food companies, too, have been performing pretty well on a year to day basis. So I think all those things together uh, suggest that they, you know, they don't aren't necessarily going to be leading uh, the market higher. I don't think this is a new story. We have a really great cyclical expansion story people are captivated with, but they can certainly hold their own. Yeah. Well, speaking of kind of the phenomenon Kate was just talking about, one of the plant, well, I don't, do you call an old company plant-based? I guess, but uh, it's making its way to the public markets. Oatly has formally filed for an IPO, and it's got, you might say I'm going to bet against Oatly, but do you want to bet against Oprah? This company has some superstar backers. The Wall Street Journal said they sold a $200 million stake to a group led by Blackstone that included Oprah, former CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, Natalie Portman, and Jay-Z. At the time, the sale valued Oatly at about $2 billion. Kate, what do we think the valuation could be now? I think it's all about the total addressable market. That's what people are talking about. The TAM here, how big is the opportunity for Oatly, aside from oat milk? You know, you, you might have celebrities replacing their dairy milk with oat milk, but they also make ice cream. What, how far can you expand into other food products with just oats into, unless they get into Something like meat substitutes. I, for one, am a big Oatly fan, but I don't know <laughs> do how big this San opportunity is if it justifies. You're required. Exactly. It's like showing I mean, a driver's I've license. You have to though. open your fridge. I, I was an early adopter. The hemp milk, 
cashew milks. I've tried them all. Oatly is actually my favorite so far. Julie, what would you add? (laughs) Well, what I would say here is that Los Angeles is plastered with ads for the yogurt (laughs) and the ice cream. I do think they see a huge opportunity to go beyond just milk. And I think that there's more opportunity for differentiation and for, I don't know, I think these these plant-based ice creams can get pretty expensive. But there was one estimate that the retail value of the plant-based dairy industry is expected to hit $7 billion by 2025. I think if companies like Oatly really invest in these other things, like the ice creams or the cheeses, that's where they're going to be able to grow that addressable market even larger. Mike, I would say, I, look, there's tons of dairy and gluten and all of that allergies and problems. Absolutely. Do I think this is going to be a huge category? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But why does have to be successful in that category. Either it's a huge amount of marketing. I mean, anything they can do, like Kate was saying earlier, can't Kirkland do just as well or better? Over time, most likely, yes. Certainly a brand head start is not worth nothing. And I think Oatly does have that. I believe, you know, there's Oatly in in my fridge. I have a Gen Zer at home who, you know, uses it in her uh, her iced coffee. Um, (laughs) So I I get it. Uh, What I do think is interesting, though, is the way we get these revisionist stories about, have you seen this stuff about the process of making oat milk actually results in a kind of a high sugar product, Hmm. high glycemic index? I mean, is that you, true for steel cut? Because that's what food we're food. I don't think so. I think it's just the oatmeal. <laughs> so my point is what American food industry does is it creates um, kind of a sugar delivery system yes. out of what started out as a healthy thing, whether it's <laughs> yogurt or cereal or anything else. Yeah, no, I mean, we're going to have a documentary if we keep going here, because I totally agree with you. It's like you avoid one problem and you fall uh, headlong into another. Uh, by the way, Kate, do, you, do we know are they a two billion dollar company still or is it do we know yet? It looks like what I was reading this morning, it looked like about $7 billion, so wow. at the IPO. And I think it, it varies. The last private valuation was $2 billion, So wow. they've already made it to unicorn status. But if Oprah's drinking it, it's good enough for me. Yeah, and most. All right, finally, another big name is jumping into <laughs> cryptos today. Venmo will now allow its users to buy and sell four different coins, Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash. There is going to be a mini- minimum spending requirement of $1, and users can share their crypto purchase on their feeds, much like we all see kind of thanks for lunch or whatever brunch. At more than 70 million users, Venmo, which is owned by PayPal, is helping to bring crypto to the masses. Kate, what is the point of this? Why does Venmo need to get involved? couple of points here. The first is that Venmo needs to hit profitability. And Bitcoin trading has seen through Square and others, we had Coinbase last week, that is an extremely profitable business. So I think PayPal is thinking strategically here. They're doing it for PayPal. They already have this partnership with Paxos. It's relatively easy to launch it with Venmo, and it sort of opens up the market for Bitcoin. So a lot of crypto traders are excited about this, and it does sort of peg them against Square Cash App. Those are the two rivals in sort of that peer-to-peer payment space. If Cash App has it, why not have it on Venmo? You're giving people a reason to potentially uh, choose Cash App over Venmo. The one thing you can't do yet, though, is send crypto to other people. So that's a feature, I'm told, could be in the works, but they haven't done it yet. Julie, I could see that being a differentiator. For now, though, again, I don't quite follow. I think this seems like Venmo and PayPal have really been seeing this as an opportunity to bring crypto to the masses. I do think that this is early days for how PayPal is going to be thinking about crypto within its various platforms. They've made a number of investments in this space. But I think you're right. Once you could start sending, uh, you know, doing everything in on Venmo in crypto, mm-hmm. that's when you know crypto has really hit the mainstream. But I think there's something about the social piece of it where you can watch your friends doing things with crypto, then I think that might make even more people excited to get into it. I know. Even Mike, as Robinhood is cracking down on gamifying stocks, but it's okay for Venmo to use social to, you know, encourage more 
crypto. I don't know. You know. Social apps create and deliver the content that, that generates more engagement. I think that's true here. It's true with, you know, Instagram. It's true everywhere. Um, and so a lot of the activity in crypto, as we know, is people buying something because it seems like the thing to buy right now. Mm-hmm. Um, separated from the high minded and long term uh, virtues, as they might be, of the kind of crypto blockchain economy. <laughs> just so well put. We're just going to leave it right there. Julia Borson, Michael Santoli, and Kate Rooney, thank you all. It's great rapid fire. Coming up, Jeffrey's David Zervo says there may not be a better market hedge right now than the Jays. And we'll tell you who they are and why he's expecting continued dovishness out of the Fed next. And as we head to break, it's Financial Literacy Month, and CNBC is sharing messages from business and thought leaders about the importance of financial education. Here's Bridgewater's Ray Dalio. Take a listen. When I was a kid, I did odd jobs. You know, I caddied, I mowed lawns and so on. And I took my catting money and I put it in the stock market because stocks were hot at the time. And the first stock I bought was a company that was the only company I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. So I thought I could make more money if it went up. It turns out the company was about to go broke. Somebody acquired it and it tripled and I was hooked. Welcome back. While stocks hover near all-time highs, experts are worried that rising inflation could not only crash the party, maybe stick around for a long time. But not my next guest. He says there's no better hedge right now against risk than the Jays. Fed Chair Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. For more, let's welcome in David Zervos. He's Chief Market Strategist at Jefferies. David, it's great to see you again. And I, I want you to come on for everybody right now. And this includes everyone, maybe from some folks buying crypto, to Larry Lindsay yesterday, who laid out a strong case uh, for why he's concerned about budget deficits and inflate and persistent inflation. Why don't you agree? I mean, here most people would say, yeah, of course the 10-year should be at 3%. Would you agree with that or no? Do you think that even that is unlikely? No, I don't agree with that. I mean, I, look, I think there's a chance with, with some of these base effects and a few of the short-term reopening issues that we could get a pop in inflation. We're going to get that base effect pop. I mean, the, the comps, we're, remember, we're comparing to March, April, May, when the economy collapsed, we lost 22 million jobs, prices collapsed, activity collapsed, and now we're going to lose those those pieces of March, April, May. So the comps are going to look amazing against such a terrible backdrop. And that's both for inflation and for things like retail sales, like last week and other, and other uh, economic activity indicators. So you're going to get this, and then it's going to roll out, Kelly, and then we're going to be back to where we were, which is, you know, Back in January, February of 2020, we had a 3.5% unemployment rate. There were 8.5 million people more employed, and we still couldn't hit the Fed's inflation target. We were running below 1.5%, and we had been for over eight years. We've been missing the target by something like 60 to 70 basis points a year since 2012. So I I just don't understand why everybody – I do understand it. People love it because it's a good story. It's not a good story to say, hey – Inflation is going to probably be benign because of technology and demographics and excess debt levels, which is pretty much, I think, the case. Well, and, and I'm sitting here saying I could totally see your argument and I totally see the other case. And that's what what I find so interesting about this is I can see why you're saying that we haven't hit the target and we could have a much bigger labor force. And the thing is, if we do have a bigger labor force, it's probably going to be a much better outcome. Right. For so many reasons, including it mitigates, you know, supply shortages and and, and wage hikes and, and all of that. But. What if we don't? I mean, what if there's a scenario? I think that's partly what some like Larry Lindsay would say is that we're not going to get labor force going back up. We're going to get big wage t- uh, pressures. 
these cost pressures will be persistent. Housing keeps going up. Even the imputed rent from that uh, continue, continues to contribute. I mean, could this, even if it's lasting, still stick around with us for several years' time? Well, what's really interesting, Kelly, is actually low labor force growth rates, as labor forces tend to contract in places like Japan, Scandinavia, Northern Europe, and also here and eventually in China, those are the demographics, we see demand go down. Hmm. It doesn't, I mean, we don't get the worker shortages because you only hire someone if you can sell the product that you're making. You need the demand to get there. And a fast growing labor force, like what we had in the 70s with baby boomers coming in and no one really leaving, that was in the same mm-hmm. category of size as baby boomers. We just saw a huge demand increase. So I don't I don't worry about the shortage of workers story. And I'll tell you the other interesting thing. And I think about this a lot. You have a lot of CEOs coming on here talking about uh, about how the pandemic has changed their business, how technology's changed their business. I worry that a lot of the technological advances that were going to take place over the next decade all started to take place much faster yeah. in the response to the pandemic. And that as they go to look at hiring back who they need, um, those companies that had an Internet strategy, that had a tech strategy, are the ones that survive. They're going to pile more into that. And they're just not going to need the same amount of workforce as they had before. So we're going to get a lot of retail and a lot of hospitality jobs back in the next few months. That eight and a half million goes down to six, five, four. But that four million down to zero back to where we were, that might be a harder thing to get done in the second half of the year. And I don't think people are thinking about it that way. They're extrapolating these sort of right, these, these right. trends of like, you know, millions of jobs a month. I, I don't buy that. So with the 30 seconds that I have left, I mean, is right. there is it as simple as so you're long the stock market because you think we tease the Jays, Janet Yellen and Jay Powell, T-Fed, the Treasury, they're going to get it right, that this is not going yes. to be them chasing the inflation curve, chasing bond yields, that, that this is all going to be kind of the Goldilocks outcome. Yeah. And and remember, we have a fixed income hedge usually in our portfolios for when things go bad. Um, We couldn't buy any of that. Nobody could buy that when 10 year yields were 90, 60 basis points. Exactly. There was no benefit to that. So we really just had to take a take a, you know, a a stand and say, okay, Janet and Jay will be the backstop (laughs) this year if there is something negative. And I think we learned from how they reacted to the crisis that they will go big. They will go early. And if something does happen. God forbid that that takes us back to a darker place. I'm betting on them as a hedge. I don't need the two-year notes. I don't need the five-year notes or the ten-year notes. If they go another fifty to hundred base points higher, I'll grab them back in. We'll lever them up, and we'll be back to spoos and blues or spoos and twos or whatever. <laughs> spoos and uh, whatever rhymes with a fixed income hedge. But for now, I like the Jays. Yeah, Dave, you're the the, the Z. Thank you, Zervos. Uh, very much appreciate it. Laying out that case, David Zervos from Jeffries. Still ahead, check out this mystery chart. The street initiating coverage with Barclays calling this name the Amazon of resale. We'll tell you what it is right after this. Welcome back. Before we go, shares of ThreadUp are popping today by about 10 percent. Barclays calling the retailer the Amazon of retail, initiating coverage with an overweight and a $19 target. They're saying ThreadUp's business model is like Amazon in the early days. Goldman at 20, Wells Fargo at 22 bucks. ThreadUp is at 16.50. That does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 